Bayonne's Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we conclude our series, Behind Family Lines. Today, our speaker is Elder Gary Deaver, who has us look at the characteristics of a dysfunctional family. We're challenged by the question, how dysfunctional are you? Gary gives us some ideas on how to get out of the failure to function according to intended design pattern. Listen as he helps us find some ways to be members of a functional family that honors God. Hey, good morning, Bay Hills. Good morning. It's good to be here this morning, and uh, this is actually, we're wrapping up our series behind enemy, uh, enemy, behind family lines. It may be an enemy, I don't know, uh, behind family lines. And uh, Dave's asked me to kind of wrap it up uh, this evening, uh, this morning. We're going to look at uh, characteristics of a dysfunctional family. You know, we've all heard the word dysfunctional, and it has been defined in several ways. Uh, one of it is not performing normally, malfunctioning, and I really like this one, failure to function according to intended design. And now... If you take this definition, we're all dysfunctional because God intended to have perfect communion with us. He intends us in his design for us to have constant fellowship, constantly worshiping him, recognizing his involvement in our lives. And we we don't do that. We fail to do that so often. So we're not functioning according to intended design. That's why we need a savior. That's why we need the Holy Spirit's power in our lives to help us to put it together, if you will. Because we can't put it together on our own. The Bible describes us as being totally depraved. Now, when I use that word, I kind of grin because it doesn't mean that you're as bad as you can be. It just simply means that you're as bad off as you can be without a Savior. You need Jesus Christ in your life and in your families if we're ever to have a functional kind of family that glorifies God and honors him. When I was preparing this message, I came across several ways that you can find out or you might know if you have a dysfunctional family. And I thought they were kind of humorous. I thought I would share with you. Your family might be dysfunctional if the bikers who live next door are always complaining about the noise. You might be a dysfunctional family if family discussions usually begin with put the gun down. You might be a dysfunctional family if your family picnic usually ends with your wife and preteen daughter fighting over who gets the last beer. (laughs) You might be a dysfunctional family if the police decide they can save money by making your house a local police substation. You might be a dysfunctional family if in the middle of the family reunion, the FBI cuts power to the ranch. And then lastly, you might be a dysfunctional family if the new Senate bill to ban assault weapons officially mentions your family. So so these are ways you might know if you're a dysfunctional family. This morning, we're going to look at one of the many dysfunctional families in the Bible. Uh, If you have your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 25. If you have a a Bible from the back, it's on page 24, the first book of the Bible. And notice this dysfunctional family. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padanaram, 
and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her. And this is more than just babies kicking around. And you ladies that have had babies, you know, the baby moves and kicks around. And the guys always like to feel the tummy and the baby's foot kicks it. And uh, these kids were really, you know, working each other over here. So much so that she inquired of the Lord. If you bless me so, then what's going on? Why am I having, you know, all this turmoil inside me? The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins, boys, in her womb. The first came out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau, which means hairy. Uh, after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. And Esau was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to him. Great time to start a family, especially with twins. But Jacob's name was basically heel grabber because he grasped the heel. It means to be a deceiver or trickster or one who supplants or undermines someone else. So Jacob came out and right from the beginning, we see these kids were battling each other. The first characteristic of a dysfunctional family is unmanaged sibling rivalry. Again, remember the babies jostled each other within her and said, why is this happening to me? Psychologists disagree over whether sibling rivalry is really a necessary part of life and growing up, or if it is something that is abnormal. One psychologist says this, sibling rivalry is a natural and healthy occurrence within the family unit. And all those with kids say, no, it's not. Uh, Healthy because it is only through the exercising of differences that we truly grow. Sibling rivalry is a necessary component of that growth. Another psychologist kind of disagreeing with it says this, The new view holds that conflict is not the natural state of sibling relationships. And for many of us, uh, discord sown early endures for a lifetime. The point is that sibling rivalry exists. Whether it's natural or whether it's not natural, it's there. And parents have to deal with it. And siblings have to get through it. You know, my, my parents had two children. They had my brother. And then five years later, they had me. And so my brother, obviously, is five years older than me. And when we got a little older, my parents would work in the summer months and we would stay home alone. And of course, we would fight a lot. And, uh, you know, we'd get in a big fight and turmoil. And the problem was, since he was five years older than me, whenever we got in a fight, there were really two hits that occurred. He hit me and I hit the floor. You know, that's about it, you know. And he would always grab me and throw me out of the house and lock the doors. And this is summertime. This is in Fresno. It's 110 outside, you know. And I'm this poor little kid in the heat saying, let me in, let me in, let me, you know. And I think that's probably unconsciously one of the reasons why I took martial arts. I figure one of these days I'm going to make him pay for all the abuse. But the problem is that Jacob and Esau were battling each other. The word jostled actually means to break, to bruise, to treat with violence or to struggle together. So they were battling it out right from birth. And one of the characteristics and one of the reasons that psychologists tell us for sibling rivalry, I've I've mentioned a few for you here. Let's put them up. One of them is differences in personality. And if those of you who have more than one child know that kids are different, you know, they are just total difference in personalities. My wife and I had two boys, 
And uh, the first boy, John, was born and just a wonderful, cute little baby. And he was totally placid and nice. He slept all night after the first three weeks. It was wonderful. I could actually get some sleep. And then Jared came along. Jared didn't sleep for two years. I mean, he was constantly awake. And it was amazing to me that my wife developed this unique God-given ability to sleep through anything at that point. He would cry. He would wake up. He would go nuts. And, of course, she's going, she's out, you know. So I'm the one that gets up, takes care of this kid. You know, but kids are different. And the difference in personalities can cause conflicts with siblings. The other thing is jealousy. You know, kids can be jealous of one another simply because maybe one's better looking, maybe one's smarter. That's probably why my brother abused me so much. He was jealous because I was so much better looking and so much more intelligent. Uh, But jealousy can cause problems among siblings. The third one, as you see, is unequal treatment. And we'll look at that next. But unequal treatment, parental favoritism. So how you treat each child can influence their outcome and how they view your care of them and life in general. And then the last one is simply competition. Sometimes kids are competitive. And we see all four of these characteristics in both Jacob and Esau. I mean, no wonder they battled other than the fact that God said, you know what, I'm going to change the order of things. I'm going to make the younger one in charge of the older one. The older one's going to serve the younger. So that could cause problems, you know. Um, And it was very difficult. You know, the second characteristic that we see of a dysfunctional family is simply parental favoritism. Now, it's kind of interesting if you notice here, the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. You see, right here from the beginning, there's a problem. Parents are loving children differently, and they're treating children differently. Esau was kind of the the rugged, outgoing type, the outdoors man, you know, the man's man, you know. If he were alive today, he'd probably be uh, the quarterback of the 49ers, you know. And that's simply because he'd be way too tough to be part of the Little Raiders. (laughs) I'm glad the 49ers are playing today. It gives me a little buffer and protection. Now, if Jacob were alive today... He'd be home watching the, you know, the cooking channel, you know, at TV. He'd be in the tents, taking it easy, kicking back. Just a difference in personalities. That's the way they were, you know. Now, sometimes parents can provide favor to one child or another and not know it. It's kind of natural to favor certain children over another. It's okay. You know, you might have a child who is very compliant, very does what you tell them, is real nice, And they're easy to love. They're easy to kind of say, you know what? It's really good. I like being around him. Well, the other kid is screaming, yelling, going nuts, won't do what you say. Of course, you would favor one over the other. But the important thing is how you treat them. That's the key. You can't help having a preference for one. In fact, one psychologist in The Favorite Child says this. uh, Ellen Weber Libby says this. The vast majority of moms describe having a child whom they prefer and who receives special treatment. And still parents have a hard time admitting that they favor one child over the other. The terms differ, but the message is the same. There is a favorite child. It is perfectly natural, she says, that a given child and a given parent have a special resonance. resonance. Sometimes it is brief and sometimes it is more permanent. And it's not so much 
how you feel as the important thing. You know, we make a big deal out of feelings. Uh, feelings are important, but they're not paramount. The most important thing is how you behave. That's what's crucial in life. It's not how you feel. It's not how you feel toward a child. It's how you behave toward them. And I like what James says here. The next slide, if you look at James, he says this about favoritism. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Didn't say you might not feel it. He just says, don't show it. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy clothes comes in next to you, also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now notice James is saying the thing that he's condemning is not the feelings. You can't help the way you feel. We just have preferences. We like people maybe neat to be next to us and persons not neat, we maybe wouldn't necessarily like that. But it's what you do that's important. And how you show and treat your, your, how you show favoritism and how you treat your children are paramount and that can affect them uh, for many, many years to come. You know, I've seen some parents who have children and one children is very compliant, very nice, and the other one is screaming, yelling, going crazy. I was in store one time and I saw this lady with two boys and one was just that. One of them was nice, doing what she said. She, he didn't touch the things on the shelves. The other one was screaming, yelling, pulling things off the shelves. He was doing everything except biting her on the leg. Finally, she says... Why can't you be more like your brother? And of course, we all know the obvious answer is, I'm not my brother, right? Kids are different. Everybody's different. And it's important how you treat them. I like what Proverbs says. He says this, the next slide. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, this is a tough passage to understand. Uh, great, brilliant minds who study these things that are far more brilliant than I can't even agree on it. But some of them say that what this means is that if you train up a child according to his natural personality type, according to his bent, then he'll always be responsive and follow along as he grows older. You know, you have some kids, if you have more than one kid, you know, there's one child that you can just, they do something wrong, you can just look at them, you know, and they break into tears and they cry. You have some, another child who does something wrong and you beat him with a two by four and nothing happens, right? You're going to club him. Um, not that I'm advocating that, uh, but you know, they're just a difference in children. But again, the importance of how you treat them is paramount. Isaac and Rebecca had different feelings for each children, each child, and they showed it. And that was the problem that created that. So you can have parental favoritism and create a dysfunctional family. The next third one that we'd look at is what I call trivializing God. Trivializing God. This is when we simply think that, you know, God is no big deal. You know, God's just no big deal. Now, now we wouldn't really say that, but we oftentimes live that, don't we? By that I mean, what part does God have in the decisions you make each day? Does God have any part in the discussions that you're involved in, your conversations? And the jokes you laugh at. And the friends you run with. You know, we come at church and we look all cool. And, you know, we're praising our hands. We're raising, yeah, yeah, and we're jumping. And we're doing all that great thing. God is great. We have a little cross and everything. But what about our lives when we go outside the doors? Does God really have a part in that? Because we can trivialize God so much that he really isn't involved. 
God's a nice thing to have. It's good to say, I'm a Christian. But is he really calling the shots in your life? Is he really directing and leading you every day? Because that's where he wants to be in our lives. There are several ways to trivialize God. In our passage before us, we see four people. One, we see Esau, or excuse me, Isaac, Rebekah, Esau, and Jacob. And all four of them, I think, evidence trivializing God in different ways. Let's look at the first one. Esau can be looked at as simply taking God's blessings for granted. Notice what Genesis says in verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. And Jacob said, quick, get me some of that red stuff, that red stew. I'm famished. And that's why he's called Edom. Edom simply means red. And the lineage of the Edomites came from Esau. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die. I don't think he was about to die. He just came in from hunting. He's probably hungry, but he's not about to die. It's kind of like Paramount to us saying, man, I am starving to death. And I can look at you and I know that a lot of you are not starving to death. So we're not starving. Bada boom, bada bing. (laughs) So we're not starving, right? But it's an expression we use. I'm starving. He was hungry. So he says, sell me your birthright, because what good is that to me now? I want some food. I don't want a birthright. But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. Now notice this last sentence. So Esau despised his birthright. To despise simply means to despise or to consider as insignificant. It's a trivial thing. This spiritual blessing that God has for me, man, I I want something right now. I want some food. I don't care about this birthright. The birthright was actually quite significant. It provided extra blessings and benefits to the oldest child. It gave him a double portion of all the inheritance. And it provided great spiritual blessing. He was like the spiritual leader, if you will, of the family. But Esau was more consumed about the temporary pleasures and gratification of the moment And he said, I'll sell it. I don't care. I don't need it. You know, and sometimes we get caught up in trivializing God uh, just in the moment. You know, we live in a society that we want everything right now. You know, we can't afford it, so we buy it on credit. We pay it on time. And uh, we just want it. We want the best. We don't want some medium style. We don't want some, you know, thing that's just adequate. We want the best. And we want it first. That's why you see the big long line sometimes when they come out with a new piece of technology. All these people are waiting in line because they want the best. And I talked to one man one time on a Black Friday thing. He was there. And I said, man, how come you're here so early? He's like, you know, weeks ahead of time. And he says, I want to be the first to own this. You know, we want to be the first because we fall in love with this world and the things of this world. And I like what First John 2 says, kind of a warning to this. And he says this, do not love the world. In fact, in the Greek, it actually says stop loving the world. He's telling these believers to stop what they were continually doing. Don't stop loving the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the the world, the love for the Father is not in him. Now, what's the connection with that? He's saying you can't be loving one thing and loving something else at the same time. You can't love the world that is diametrically opposed to God and be loving God at the same time. You can't do it. And that's why he says stop loving the world. The other thing that we can look at as we look at the next slide is trying to push your own agenda. 
is the way that we trivialize God. And Isaac is a good example of this. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his oldest son, and said to him, My son, here am I, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man, and I don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food that I like and bring it to me so that I may give you the blessing before I die. Let me ask you that. What's wrong with this picture here? What is Isaac going to do? He's going to give Esau, the firstborn, the blessing that God told him should go to Jacob. Didn't he just say that the older would serve the younger? That Jacob would be over Esau? So here Isaac is trying to sort of push his own agenda. You know, we kind of do that too a lot of times. You know, we know what the Bible says. You know, we know the Bible says, for example, that we ought to forgive one another. But you know what? In our agenda, we simply say, you know what? I'm so ticked off at what that person did. I, I just can't forgive them. I'm not going to do that. We have our own agenda. We, we ignore what God's agenda is. You ever been guilty of that? Ignoring what God's agenda is? God tells us to pray without ceasing. Do we pray without ceasing? No, we've got another agenda. I, I've got a busy life here, God. I can't pray all the time. I can't be thinking great thoughts about you. I've got to do other things that are more important and more immediate and more temporal. So we can create some problems by pushing our own agenda. The next thing is that when we try to help God out, Rebecca is a great example of this. What happens in the story is Rebecca overheard the conversation between Isaac and Esau. And she knows that Isaac is going to give Esau the blessing. And yet, Rebecca also knows that God promised that the older would serve the younger, that Jacob would be over Esau. So she had a choice. She could either trust God or she could sort of take matters in her own, own hands and try to help God out. You ever been guilty of just not waiting for God to work in your life? You know, you run ahead of God sometimes. You want to do things your own way. You've got your own agenda and you sort of try to help God out. God, I know your problem is to bless me and so I really need this new car and this would be a great blessing, so I'm going to go ahead and go into debt, you know? We sort of run ahead of God trying to help him out. And that's one of the ways that we can trivialize God. The last way we can see in Jacob is simply not acknowledging God at all. Do you know in this passage as we look, Jacob never really acknowledged anything about God until God met him as he was on the way north to his uncle Laban's house in Haran. And we'll talk about that. But that's the first time he ever acknowledged God working in his life. And no, you might be here this morning and you've really never acknowledged God in your life. You've never allowed Jesus Christ to become your savior. And he wants to do that this morning. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. And he's knocking on your heart's door this morning. He wants you to make him a priority in your life. Not just a peripheral thing, not just a little cross that we wear around our neck. He wants to come inside you and dwell in you and change you and transform you and give you blessings and give you help and give you strength throughout this life. Jacob is an example of those who simply don't know him. Never acknowledge what he does. The next, the fourth type of characteristic that trivialize God is that we look at it and it is practicing deception. Notice in Genesis 27, verse 5 through 13. Now, Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. And when Isaac left 
or Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebecca said to her son, Jacob, look, I overheard your father saying to your brother Esau, bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give, to my, give my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now she has a plan. She has a scheme. This is what she says. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so that I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say and go get them for me. You know, she devised this great plan. She's going to get this goat. She's going to kill a couple of goats, make a great feast for Isaac. And then she's going to take the skin and she's going to put it on Jacob's arms and hands and around his neck so that when Isaac touches him, it's going to feel like the skin of Esau. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I've always had trouble with that because to me, it seems like Isaac must have really been out of it because I think I could probably tell whenever the goat skin started and the other skin didn't. But, but the plan worked. He fell for it. And he sold the blessing or gave the blessing to Jacob instead of to Esau. Now, the problem is there's a lot of things that go on with, with deception. A lot of problems occurs. Let's put this next slide up. I've listed three for you, and there are obviously a lot more that happens. But one of them is that deception destroys trust. Alan Ross, in his book uh, relating to this passage, Creation and Blessings, says this. Sadly, the family unit was on the verge of collapse because the family members did not value uphold or impart the greatest virtue in the family, trust. Without trust, any action or advice is worthless, and the chances of improving one another's lives are slim and hopeless. With trust, he continues, there is honesty, stability, and respect in the family, and people are more willing and likely to listen to, lean on, and look after one another. You know, some of us in our families have had our trust undermined or destroyed. And we can't seem to get around it. Maybe it was an affair. And we're battling with that. We can't get past that. You know, maybe it was someone lying to us in the family. And we can't trust them any longer. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe one of the spouses or one of the children are doing drugs. And so your trust in them is weakened. And one thing I know about trust, it takes a long time to kind of build it up. But as soon as it is broken, it's gone. And it takes a long, long time, maybe even a lifetime to restore. Trust can destroy, I mean, deception can destroy trust. And it can undermine the entire family. And it certainly creates a dysfunctional one. The other thing is deception can be contagious. And by that, I mean, people that deceive always like to try to pull other people into it. You ever notice that? I was, years ago, I used to work as a surgical technician. Uh, that means I was a tool man. I basically handed the clamps to the doctors. You know, the clamp, you've seen the movies, they get a clamp, scalpel, scalpel, sponge, sponge. So I was a tool man. And I uh, worked with these doctors in the operations. And this one doctor came to me one day and he said, hey, Gary, you know, I, I need your help. I wonder if you could help me out. And I said, well, I'll let me know and see what I can do. Apparently, there were several nights when this doctor didn't come home. And his wife was wondering where he was. 
So he wanted me to call his wife and tell her that I was with him in surgery on those nights. Of course, I wasn't, and I didn't. But he was trying to pull me into this whole scheme and this whole deception because deception can be contagious that way. It can infect others. The other thing is that deception, it grows. You know, it starts out small sometimes. And maybe it just says, hey, don't tell your father. You know, let's keep it just between you and me. Don't tell dad. You know, and then it grows. Pretty soon you're withholding further information. And then pretty soon you're just lying. Notice that in this passage, it affected Jacob so much that he got caught up in the deception. And then he was lying to his own father. Notice in chapter 27 and verse 19, he says this. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of the game so that you may bless me. That's a lie. It wasn't Esau. It was Jacob. So he starts lying to his dad. Now he goes up even more than that. It even grows beyond that because he starts to pull God in the process. Notice what he says in verse 20. Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord, your God, gave me success, he replied. So he's even pulling God into this. You know, he tries to get spiritual. You know, we do that. We kind of quote verses, you know. Yeah, the Lord said this. The Lord helps those who help themselves. Well, he didn't say that in the Bible, of course, but we like to think that. So we put it in there. You know, we start to pull God and sound so spiritual because deception can grow and it can cause problems in your life. The fifth and last characteristic that I want to talk to you this morning about is maintaining or poor communication. Destructional or dysfunctional families have one thing in common. They don't communicate well. And you've probably seen these families. Families are either screaming and yelling at each other or they're not talking to each other. I'm just not going to talk to them. You know, and you see husband and wives in the fight and they're just not talking to each other and you know, maybe you've been there. You know, you go to bed at night. You're not talking. You're fighting. And so you pull the covers up and you pull it over this way. You know, your wife gets the covers and you pull that way. You know, and there's nobody going to touch anybody. You know, don't get too close. You're touching my side. It's kind of the way you feel, you know. So we, we have this chasm because we don't communicate well. You know, and it, it's really interesting. Rebecca could have quite easily, when she heard this conversation between Isaac and Esau, simply gone to Isaac and said, now, Isaac, you know, and I both know that God has sovereignly promised that the older would serve the younger, that Jacob would be the blessed one over Esau. So we need to give him the blessing. Wouldn't that been easy? Could have solved the problem. But instead, she deceives, she lies, she cheats, and she comes up with this great elaborate plan to try to help God out in the process. You know, communication is really a key to any relationship, but especially in families. You've got to communicate. You've got to be open. You've got to tell people how it is. Now, I like uh, Ephesians chapter 4. I didn't put this up on a slide, but take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25. It's a classic passage on communication. It says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Now, he says, stop lying and start telling the truth. That's all you've got to do. If you're lying to one another, if you're you know, covering up the truth, you're withholding information, just be truthful with one another. That's a great way to communicate. And then he goes on and he says, in your anger, do not sin. He didn't say it's wrong to get angry. You're going to get angry sometimes, but don't sin. 
Don't get vile. Don't yell and scream and cuss and throw things. Just get angry and allow God to work in the process. He says, do not let the sun go down while you were angry. Basically, it means to stay current with one another. You got to keep current. And then he says in verse 30, he says, oh no, excuse me, verse 29, do not let any, any unwholesome communication come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for the building others up to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. You know, you want to speak words that are going to be encouraging, not cutting each other down, not tearing each other down in your families or in your relationships. And then he says in verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Isn't that a great motivation? You know, we have some people who just can't forgive. Well, what if God says, you know what? I just can't forgive you. Think of where God brought you from. How much has God forgiven you for and continues to forgive you for? He says, you know what? That's to be the pattern of your forgiveness of one another. Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So what ways can we improve the dysfunctional family? What do we do? So we look at the next slide. There's several ways that we can improve it. I've listed just three here for you to take a look at. The story continues. Esau decides he's going to kill Jacob. So Rebecca gets wind of the story, and so she tells Jacob, I want you to go up north and live with my brother in Haran, brother Laban. He's up there. It's about a little over 300 miles away. So she says, pack up your stuff. He's going to kill you. Just stay there and wait till this whole thing blows over. And Esau's temper is cooled. And, uh, and then I'll let you know. And then you can come back and live with us. Everything will be great. But on his way, of course, it's going to take several days to get there. On his way, one night, he goes to sleep. And he gets a big rock. He puts his head on it as a pillow. And he has this dream. And in this dream, there's this big ladder going from earth up to heaven. And angels are descending and ascending on this ladder. And at the top of this ladder is the Lord. And the Lord speaks to him and promises, Jacob, I'm going to bless you as I promised Abraham, your grandfather, and Isaac, your father. Your seed is going to be innumerable. You won't be able to count them. I'm going to give you all this land. I just want you to follow me. And Jacob wakes up and he says, man, you know, and this is the first time he's ever been exposed to God in his life or even acknowledged it. Wow, something has happened. And now notice what the first way that we can improve a dysfunctional family is to recognize that God wants to work in your family. Notice what he says in verse 16. Jacob awoke from his sleep and he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Now notice the Lord is in this place and I was not even aware of it. He wasn't aware of it because he had no spiritual sensitivity to understand it. And I'm going to tell you, you know, we need to develop a spiritual sensitivity to know that God wants to work in our families. We need to recognize that God wants to be part of your discussions at home. God wants to be part of your family time at home. God wants to be part of the things you do. Because when we recognize that, we'll start to have the kind of family that God has intended it to be. The design that he had for the family. The next thing we need to do is that we need to determine to be in constant communion with God. Notice in verse 18 of chapter 28. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and he set it up as a pillar. 
and he poured oil on top of it, and he called the place Bethel. It's really interesting. He even changed the name of the town. The town was Luz in the beginning, and he changed it to Bethel. Bethel means in Hebrew, the house of God. He said, you know, this is the house of God because God was in this place. Now, let me ask you this. Where is the house of God nowadays? It's not this building we're in. What is the house of God? It's us. You, if you're a believer this morning, are the house of God. God dwells inside of you. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We are where God is present. He's in you. And since he's in you, he wants to direct your thoughts and guide you and allow you to grow and to be part of a real blessing in your life. You know, we need to have constant communion with God. He's in you. He just wants you not to ignore him. You know, if you come into my house, because we can ignore God. We can ignore the Holy Spirit that's in our lives. If you come into my house and you just say, Gary, I'm a genius on financial matters. You know, I'm going to just take over your house. I'm going to control everything for you. And I say, great, come into my house. And you sit in the living room. And then I just walk past you and I act like you're not even there. Gary, Gary, I've got a great idea. Oh, I'm worrying over these bills here. You know, I just, Gary, I can solve that. I just keep ignoring you. You know, that's what we do with the Holy Spirit sometimes. You know, he's in our lives. God's in our lives, but we ignore his work in our life. We just kind of come along and keep going and doing our own thing. But God wants to work in our lives, and we need to determine to have constant communion with God. And then the third thing is right along, this, along with this. We need to allow God to work in your life and in your family. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a tenth. Now, it's kind of interesting. I sort of laugh when I read this, you know, and I don't necessarily want you to do this the way Jacob did it. You know, I want you to allow God to work in your life. I want him to be your God but I don't want you to make a grocery list of all the things that he has to do first. You know, if God gives me a new BMW, if God gives me a new home, if God uh, blesses me with health and helps me have a good long life, then he will be my God. You know, God doesn't work on contingencies. God says, you know what? I want you just to allow me to be a major part in your life because I've got the best plan for you. God's got a plan to make your family completely harmonious if you'll submit to him and allow you to work, allow him to work in your life. God can put it together. Isn't he the God of the impossible? Can't he do anything? Amen? God can do anything. And God can even work in your family and in my family to create harmony. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning because you're a great God. Because there's none like you. There's none who cares for us like you. Father, we can run to social clubs, we can run to the bars, we can run to our friends at work, we can run to our neighbors, we can go to all those who think uh, we think have an impact, but Father, they really don't. You're the one who really cares for us. They'll turn away from us in a moment, but you, Father, are always there. Help us as your people, Father, to allow you to work in our families. Help us to recognize, Father, that you want to be a major part of our family, not just a trinket that's hung on a wall. Help us, Father, to surrender our lives to you and have sweet communion and fellowship with you continually. And we ask this because you're a great God. In Jesus' name, amen.
It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.